Well, again, my name is Blake. I'm the pastor at your sister church, Church of the Holy Cross in Crozet. Yesterday, Kevin sent me a note uh, saying that he had come down with some sort of stomach bug or something. Would it be possible if I could come and fill in? And it works out that our church meets at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and so I couldn't say no. Um, <laughs> but I'm delighted to be here uh, with y'all and to share God's Word with you this morning. Let's pray. Father, you have given us, your people, your children, as we read in Romans, a spirit of sonship, that we can call out to you as our Father. And help us to hear, Lord, the love that you have for us as our Father, the deep compassion you have for us as your children. And may we glory in the grace that is before us here in your word. So give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that might turn back to you that we can enter into this great party that you are continually throwing for your beloved children. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. At the end of Luke chapter 14, a question is asked, or rather, Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. The question is, who is it that's going to actually hear what Jesus is talking about? Who is responding? What sorts of people are responding to Jesus' message? We can think about Jesus in the Gospels as going around, preaching and teaching, yes, but he's an, extending an invitation, an invitation to come and join him. Join him in a feast. Join him in a party. And when we come to Luke chapter 15, we get more insight on who it is that's actually responding to Jesus' invitation and who it is that's not responding to Jesus' invitation. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near. For what? They were drawing near to Jesus to do what? To hear him. Tax collectors and sinners, two representative groups of people who were generally despised and hated during that time. Who has ears to hear? Well, Luke chapter 15, 1 tells us it's these sorts of people. Tax collectors and sinners, they're the ones whose ears are opening up and who are responding to the invitation that Jesus is giving. They're the ones who are hearing the words of Jesus. And Jesus is getting into trouble, as you probably know, with the religious establishment. But because precisely of this problem, that he's collecting the wrong sorts of people around him. And to add to the scandal, he's sharing table fellowship with them. Who is not hearing? Who is not responding to Jesus' invitation? Well, it's those who have, should have been most primed to hear the message of God's kingdom breaking into the world through the Messiah. It should have been the Pharisees and the scribes who were most ready to accept and receive this invitation. But yet, here they are grumbling. They're very sour towards Jesus. But here's why they're grumbling. They're grumbling because this man, Jesus, receives sinners. And not only does he receive them, he has the audacity to eat with them, to share table fellowship with them. Responding to Jesus' invitation, whether then or now, is all about ending up around the table, sharing a meal 
with Jesus. This is the gospel. It's this invitation to be at table with Jesus. And the gospel is about the lost being found. Why? So that they can feast with the Lord. So that they can feast with Jesus. Lost, found, feasting. This is the movement of the gospel. And Luke chapter 15 illustrates this movement for us. The prodigal son is really an illustration of this theme. The lost, found party theme. The lost, found feasting theme. So let's look at the parable of the prodigal son for a bit this morning. This is probably the most well-known parable in the New Testament. And if you're like me, if you've grown up in the church, you hear these sorts of teachings again and again, and it kind of has a way of losing its power and its force. So let's try our best, myself included, with fresh ears to hear this word and to see what's happening, to hear this invitation afresh. So verse 11 in Luke chapter 15, and he said, Jesus is giving a parable, so an illustration of this teaching. There, uh, there was a man who had two sons. Okay, there's three characters in this parable. A younger son, an older son, and then, then, of course, the father. And we'll see what's important in this parable is how these two sons will relate to the father. The younger son, of course, makes a shocking demand from his father. He says, give me the share of property that is coming to me. So he's asking for an advance on his inheritance. Now, this is like saying, in this context here, Father, I wish you were dead. Division of property only happened among siblings when the father died. And so to even bring this up and to demand it right then, right there, is saying, you might as well be dead to me. Give me what's rightfully mine. Perhaps even more shocking, the father says, okay, here it is. And he divides up the property. But then the younger son does something even more shocking. He converts the property into cash somehow. He's giving up family land. And on top of that, he skips town. He goes away. We don't know exactly where in the parable, but the point is it's far away. It's to a far country. He wants to get the heck out of Dodge. Nothing more to do with his father. Nothing more to do with his family. He wants to erase all associations with the past. He wants to spread his wings. He wants to start anew. He wants to see the world. And he does just that. But quickly, he spends all of his money. He lives extravagantly. This is where we get the word prodigal, prodigiously. He's living large. He's enjoying the good life. Imagine, at least initially, the sense of freedom that he had to have felt when he left home, going off into this new place with all of this money. The possibilities in his mind were endless before him. No more family obligations. Lots of disposable income. An exciting new place before him. Yet reckless living has a way of catching up with us at one point or another. Not only does he burn through his cash quickly, something that he probably could have controlled with some discipline, there's something he couldn't have controlled. That's the great famine that comes. He has to hire himself out to a Gentile, someone here who owns pigs. This, by the way, also would have been very scandalous for Jews, working with pigs, enslaving yourself to a Gentile. This is a sure way of becoming ceremonially unclean. But things keep getting worse. Not only is it his job to feed pigs, he's so hungry he longs to be satisfied with what the pigs are eating. Pods. 
But there's a deeper longing and satisfaction here that the younger brother has. Uh, in addiction recovery, you may be familiar with the term hitting rock bottom. It's almost a necessity to hit rock bottom if there's going to be a change. If, something, if someone's going to come to their senses, they are going to have to hit rock bottom. It can be painful to watch someone have to hit rock bottom. But that's what happens to the prodigal. He hits rock bottom. And then he starts to wake up. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, when he came to his senses, he starts remembering home. He says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? So then he starts to put together a plan to get himself out of this mess. I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and earth before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired hands. The psalmist says in Psalm 84, I would rather be a servant in the house of the Lord than to dwell among the wicked. Servitude in the house of plenty is always better than freedom in a land of famine. The prodigal starts this turn. He knows where to go for salvation. The father's house. That's where he knows he's got anything, whatever it takes, just to get back to the father's house. The prodigal has begun this process of what Christians call repentance, turning towards the father and the father's resources. And he realizes the reason for his misery is not someone else's fault. He's not a victim. He realizes that his sin is responsible for the mess that he's in. He sinned not just against the heavenly father. He sinned against his earthly father. Sin has a spiritual dimension, and it usually has a very discernible relational dimension as well. And he acknowledges this. And what does sin do? Sin is an experience of exile. It's an experience of alienation. It's an experience of being cut off. And here he is in this self-appointed exile that he has created, this mess he has created for himself. He is in a foreign place longing for home. But he realizes he's the one who's placed himself outside of the family. He doesn't play the victim card. He realizes, I have sinned against heaven and against my earthly father. The prodigal, like the tax collectors and the sinners that Jesus is hanging out with and welcoming in, the prodigal here, he, he has become an outsider. He has become an outcast. He was an insider, but now he is an outsider. We need to notice, though, something here about the prodigal's initial repentance. He's fully ready to acknowledge his sin, absolutely, but there's some way he wants to contribute to this process of repentance, and it makes perfect sense if you think about it. Um, he wants to, maybe I can hire myself out back to my father. Surely he's not going to receive me as a son. There's no way that's going to happen, but maybe he'll kind of just let me in, and I could just be out with the hired help, and maybe over time, earn back my father's trust and love, but I'm not even going to pretend, uh, uh, pretend to think that I can come back as a son. Maybe as a servant, not as a son. So maybe I can earn back what I had before. He's thinking of a way somehow that he could save face and earn his way back into the father's good graces. And all that seems perfectly understandable in the way that human relationships work. We've offended someone, if we've wronged someone, we want to do something, just something we can earn our way back to that person we've offended. But there's a surprise coming for the younger brother. How does the father respond? You can imagine, as he's decided to make this journey back home, the younger brother is thinking, will my father even accept me back as a servant? Will this plan work? 
he's got to know everyone remembers what he did. He's probably hated because of the shame that he brought on his family by demanding his inheritance early. What will his older brother think? All these things have to be coming, going through his head. He makes his journey from the distant country. He starts to see the familiar landmarks of his hometown coming into view. And then he sees, from his perspective, someone's running towards him. You know, is this someone coming out to take him down? You know, who recognizes him? Is he, is he going to get taken out here early? But the prodigal son is not the only prodigal in the story. He's not the only extravagant one in the story. Because the father is the one that's running towards him. His father saw him, Luke says, or Jesus says in the parable, and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. By the way, in this culture, dignified fathers of prominence like this father would not have done something like this. You can imagine pulling up his robe and just taking off, running towards his son that he recognizes. The prodigal son was extravagant in his sin, but the prodigal father is even more extravagant in his grace. Notice, the father's embrace, the kiss, his deep compassion for the lost son, all of this before the son even has a chance to rehearse his confession that he had planned out. He's overwhelmed. He's overwhelmed by the father's grace. What does the father do? No lecture. No, I'm glad you're home, but son, we need to talk. None of that. He doesn't shame him. He doesn't place him on probation. He doesn't do any of that. In fact, his response here, if you think about it, it's, it's crazy. It's remarkable. He, doesn't, he just shows all this physical affection for his son. And then he turns to his servant and says to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. This is the father's response to the son who has come home. And this will be a big celebration. A healthy cow, fattened calf, probably feed over a thousand people. This is the sort of party that the whole town's coming to. Everyone's coming out to celebrate with the father and this son who is now found. The father says, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. Let's celebrate. This is the father's response. Lost, found, feasting with community. This is the movement of the gospel. This is the gospel that Jesus is sharing, that he wants not just the tax collectors and sinners to know about, but he wants the Pharisees to know about, he wants us to know about as well. The father isn't concerned about the lost money. He's more concerned about the broken relationship that is now being restored. There's a reconciliation with the son. There is peace now. Not estrangement. There's peace between the father and the son. Some of our most conflicted relationships are those with estranged family members. And if you've ever had the experience, or maybe you're longing for this experience, you're experiencing reconciliation with that estranged family member, you know how sweet and precious that is. How much sweeter, Jesus is telling us, is a reconciliation between God and those who turn to him in repentance. They will receive the Father's embrace, his unconditional love. The Father and the lost son now enjoy a party with 
the community. Do you see why Jesus is telling this parable? This parable is about God's deep compassion, his love, which Jesus comes and embodies and demonstrates and shows. It's extravagant. It's prodigious. It's prodigal, and it's available to anyone who turns to him in repentance. There's a great old hymn, Come Ye Sinners, and I love the line that says, all the fitness that he requires is to fill your need for him. The prodigal feels his need for the Father's love, and you know what? He gets it beyond his wildest expectations. He gets the Father's compassion. Forgiveness, reconciliation, generosity, feasting, these are the things that he is experiencing now. And Jesus is the embodiment of all of these things. The message is this. Turn to Jesus and come to the feast. Turn to Jesus and come to the feast. It's the tax collectors, those notorious sinners like the prodigal. They were the ones who were joining the feast with Jesus. But not everyone is responding to the invitation. Verse 25, the elder brother, he's outside in the field, perhaps been working hard like older brothers always do. He hears some commotion happening down towards the house and he's wondering what's happening and he gets one of his, his helpers, his, his servants, hey, what's, what's going on down there? What's all this racket? You know, don't they know this is a work day? Everyone should be working right now. But rather than so, so he's told, well, you know, there's, there's a party going on. The whole town, obviously, is getting together. But rather than going and rushing to join the party, the oldest son, by the way, in that culture would have had a responsibility to play co-host with the father in any kind of community celebration like this. Rather than going, oh, well, this is my responsibility. Once he knows it's his son, his younger brothers come home, he keeps his distance. He's not joining that party. He's told his younger brother is safe and sound, and there's feasting, there's a party. And his response He's enraged, completely offended. He's especially mad, not just that the younger brother has returned home, but he's mad that there's a feast, that there's a party for him. So he protests, not going to that party. So the father comes out and pleads with the older son. Come on in. Come be a part of this. The older son, he states his defense here, why he's not coming. He complains. He grumbles. I've served you, he says. And what do I get for being so diligent all of these years? And he says, I've never broken any of your commandments. Now, parents, if a child, even really good kids ever told you that, you would think, I mean, come on, you know, this this is hyperbole here. He says, you've never thrown a party for me like this. But you sacrificed the fattened calf for that son of yours. It doesn't say my brother. That son of yours, you would expend all these family resources on him? He's not just angry that the younger brother has come home. He's angry at the father's grace towards the younger brother. It's so undeserved. And that's just the point. The Father simply says, such a celebration is necessary when one who is lost is found. Join the party. Come if you will. 
But will he go in? We don't know. It's left open-ended. We don't know how the older brother is going to respond. We don't know if he accepts the invitation to the feast. Like the story of Jonah, if you're familiar with that. He's upset that Nineveh actually repented and receives God's mercy. The wrong people, once again, receiving God's mercy. And Jonah, at the end of Jonah, he's kind of smarting over the whole ordeal. So it is here with the older brother. This sort of ending invites us to consider how do we respond to the invitation that Jesus gives to join the feast? Will we turn and join the feast that Jesus is inviting us to? On the one hand, the point of the parable is obvious. Remember how Luke 15 begins. The Pharisees are upset that Jesus is eating with the wrong sorts of people. And it's the Pharisees who are grumbling. And it ends with someone who is grumbling, the older brother. The older brother is upset that Jesus is eating with the wrong person, the wrong pe- or that the prodigal is welcoming the, the wrong sort of person. The Pharisees are being like the older brother. The younger brothers, like the tax collectors and sinners, are repenting and enjoying a meal with Jesus, Jesus who embodies the Father's compassion. And again, the message is this. Turn to Jesus and join the feast. Will we hear that call? We all have younger brother and older brother tendencies in our hearts. And I think this parable calls us to consider at least how we are like both in some ways. And for us to consider the ways that we need to repent, turn to the Father's love, so that we can partake in this feast. Just a couple of points of application to close here. First, I think this parable challenges us to consider how we need to repent of self-indulgence. This is the younger brother, the prodigal. The younger brother charted a course of his own. He pursued a life of self-indulgence and extravagance. He was living large. He literally gives his life to consumption, and he literally consumes all of his resources. Consuming resources to find some sort of deeper satisfaction, I don't know if any of us can relate to that. (laughs) It was never enough. And his wild consumption was the thing in the end that ruined him. We're in the season of Lent. I think Lent is a very appropriate time for all of us to consider the ways that we go down this path of consumption, of self-indulgence. There's a sociologist, Zygmunt Bauman, who has written about what a consumerist culture actually means and the effects of living in a consumerist culture. And listen to how he defines this. I normally don't read quotes this long, but I thought this was spot on. A consumerist culture is this. It values transience and mobility rather than duration and stability. And the newness of things and reinvention of oneself over endurance. It is a hurried culture that expects immediacy and has no use for delays. And one that values individualism and temporary communities over deep, meaningful, and lasting connection to others. Do you think that this is a description of the younger brother? when he decided to go away. Don't you think this is a description in some way, probably of all of us, who go down this path of self-indulgence? We live in a culture of consumption. It's all around us. It's in the air we breathe. It's so hard to escape it because it's so much a part of our lives. A culture of consumption says you can buy 
and reinvent yourself constantly towards happiness. Pursue any desire that makes you happy. Just go for it. You know, as long as you don't really hurt someone else, just keep going for it. Bonds to family, bonds to a particular place, bonds to God. You know, ultimately, these should serve your desires. Just be your authentic and true self. You ever heard this? Am I the only one who's heard things like this before? The irony is that this path leads to famine and poverty of the soul. So we need to consider the ways which we give ourselves to self-indulgence and turn from it. We also need to repent of self-righteousness. This is, of course, the older brother. The older brother, his self-righteousness is what's keeping him from the party. He assumed that he deserved all the father's good resources and was sure that the younger brother didn't. Lent is also, I think, an appropriate time for us to repent of the ways that we feel entitled to the Father's blessing and look down on others who we think are worse than us. Self-righteous needs to be reminded of God's radical grace in Jesus Christ towards us. We all have younger brother and older brother tendencies. And self-indulgence and self-righteousness keep us away from the party, the feast that Jesus is putting on. What's the way back to the feast? Whether we're joining the feast for the first time or we've been to the feast but we've left it, what's the way to get back to the feast? It's always repentance. It's acknowledging, like the prodigal son, that we have sinned, and it's accepting and receiving the Father's extravagant grace that he's given us through Jesus Christ. Turn to Jesus and join the feast. It's the fitting parable for the middle of Lent. Think of the prodigal father, the prodigal God's party of culminating at Easter. And Lent is the road, it's the way back to this feast, the way back to this party, and it's a road marked by repentance. So may God help us repent so that we can join the Father's feast. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.